This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. And I saw this guy in an article, and I was like, there's a black president of a Federal Reserve Bank in America? Well, he is the first black president of a Federal Reserve Bank in America, and it's in Atlanta. Let me welcome to the show, for the first time, Mr. Raphael Bostic. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Glad to be again. Well, you know, I, I was um, reading about you, and I said, man, um, how does a person become, because explain to some people, I've been studying this because my dad was in, into money and stuff, so we had these conversations about a bunch of stuff that I can't talk about on the air, but one of them was the Federal Reserve Bank. And, you know, he was explaining to me that this is not a government uh, entity. The Federal Reserve Bank operates in its own silo, but you impact America's interest rates and a host of other things. So we can't operate financially without the Federal Reserve, but you aren't elected by us, per se. Talk about how this functions, this entity over here that is not part of our government. So... First of all, thank you for having me. It's good to be here, and I'm, I'm really glad to have an opportunity to talk about the Fed because it is a, it's an important institution, and it's one that people don't understand. When I talk about the history of the Fed, I, you know, the first thing I, I do is talk about Alexander Hamilton. So if you all have seen Hamilton, uh, you know there was an argument that they had back in the 1700s about whether the central bank for the country should be centralized in Washington, D.C., or whether it should be decentralized out in the state. And what they settled on in 1913 through the Federal Reserve Act is a combination of that, where part of the power of the, of the institution is settled in Washington, and then the rest is distributed around the rest of the country in 12 what are called reserve banks. And those reserve banks are independent, and they're designed to be representative of the parts of the country that they oversee. So in Atlanta, we have the southeastern United States. We have Florida, Georgia, Alabama parts of Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee. And my job is to represent them. And uh, we have members. Uh, the members are the banks that are located in that district. They are shareholders. Uh, and uh, part of the way the Federal Reserve Act is structured, uh, we get an opportunity to go to Washington, weigh in on the interest rate policy, and, and at times we have votes. So, uh, so we are full participants in the policymaking space. But at the same time, we're separate. And it really goes back to that early argument that they had about where central banking should occur. And let me just say, part of this is a, a, a real skepticism and cynicism about concentration of power. They didn't want it in New York, where all the money center banks are. They didn't want it in Washington exclusively, where all the governmental and politicians are. So they tried to break it up. And my, my role is part of that breaking it up. Uh, how did you, how, tell me how, Raphael Bostic, tell me a little bit about your story. Because, you know, to, to grow up in America as a black man, Right. Um, and I, I tease you because you, you grew up in Jersey, sort of <laughs> to grow up in America as a black man. <laughs> I, you know, yes. Do, yeah, do you do you aspire to become a banker? Was that on your to do list? And if so, what inspired you to want to be, become a banker? So I had no idea. I was like everybody else when I was growing up. I didn't really know what the Fed was and I didn't really have this on my radar. Uh, but what happened was, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to go to Harvard undergrad. Uh, met a lot of people, got into finance as, as a field, uh, did some work on that, went and got a Ph.D. in economics. And then my first research project was on discrimination in mortgage lending. And that brought me to finance, 
to underwriting to capital and to the role of banks. And I worked on that, those issues for about uh, six years in Washington at the Fed, the, the, the centralized Fed in D.C. And then I went and became a professor and went uh, to Los Angeles, worked at USC, uh, fight on for the Trojans, and, um, and wound up uh, working on housing issues. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, mortgage lending, uh, subprime mortgages, all that kind of stuff. And then, as you know, um, things happen in that space, and we needed to do some, some cleanup. And so I got called to go to Washington to work on that cleanup when we had the Great Recession, when that, that, the, uh, the housing bubble burst. And I worked on that for three years. So through the course of my career, I kind of stumbled on different parts of things that are important for uh, working at the Fed. So when the Fed uh, position in Atlanta opened, the headhunter called me and said, uh, send your resume in, and you know you you always do that. If anybody asks you to send a resume, in, you just do it, uh, thinking there's no way this is going to happen, and uh, it happened. So I was I was just very surprised and uh, and pleased, and it's been a, a great experience. This is a, a privileged place to be, and it's a a way to provide uh, s- service to a lot of people uh, directly. And I've really tried to pull our bank to be very grounded in communities, as well as thinking uh, more broadly about uh, the national economy. 866-801-8255. Yeah, Sina, you had a question. Yeah, hi, President Bostic, Sina Gasby here. Um, you know, of the tools, well, actually, let, let me actually, actually ask you about housing since you brought that up. If you could go back and see what the inefficiency were, inefficiencies were, or I would say fraud that was happening in the housing market, where do you think your impact was most effective? Where, what were the solutions that you kind of provided that kind of built, rebuilt the foundation? Because everything that I've been reading about housing today, it's, it's pretty solid, right? And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of issues with that. What was kind of the fix that transitioned that? Well, for me, I think the most important shift was in just how we think about housing. So way back in the beginning of my career, when people were thinking about flipping houses, it was a problem because it was just churning in from mortgage to mortgage, uh, and bankers were accused of, of extracting fees uh, and just basically milking the homeowner through this, this, uh, this continual churn. You fast forward five or six, seven years, and we got TV shows called Flip This House where we started thinking about flipping and housing as just this investment tool that you can do, get in, do something fast, and not really recognize that there are real risks associated with, with uh, being how, doing housing and doing those sorts of things. Like if, you don't, if you're not able to sell, the whole thing comes down, and that's basically what happened. You know, you talked about um, the, the uh, fraud and, and a bunch of stuff. There was a lot of that stuff that went on. And, you know, one of the things that I think was really absent in that period was due diligence. Like nobody got paid if a deal didn't happen. And so everybody tried to make the deals happen regardless of whether it made any kind of sense or not. They were like, let me just get paid on my transaction and then move on. So what happened was coming after that, there were a bunch of rules put in place about how you can do these things. There were a bunch of requirements for banks to say you have to hold more capital uh, the way we uh, regulate and, and oversee institutions has, has changed. We're much more direct. Like I have a bunch of uh, bank examiners and my staff, and we have hard conversations all the time now that we weren't having before because we can't afford to do that again. There was too much pain for families and too much pain for communities. 
You're acting, though, uh, as if, and we're talking with Raphael Bostic, uh, he is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, that this wasn't on purpose. The targeting of black people wasn't on purpose. I, I'm reading The Color of Money, of course, and there is a very willful targeting of black dollars. I'm experiencing, personally, right now, and I just talked to a millionaire friend of mine who could not get a loan for a house that she wanted to buy, so she paid cash for it. Okay, so she was like, all right, I'm not even going to go through all of this. She had a great credit score. She had money in the bank. So she just dropped seven hundred thousand dollars on a house. Right. Because she couldn't get a mortgage. That's subprime lending. I have two subprime loans myself with good credit, a job that I've been in for 17 years, you know, money in the bank. And I still got a, a, a two loans, one with a piggyback, which, you know, at the time you don't realize you're 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 in these pro- products until now it comes out. We lost more wealth during that subprime debacle, and I do think that it was on purpose and it targeted black people, and that wealth won't be returned for a while. How do we fix that? Well, I think there are a couple things. So first of all, there's a long history in finance and in mortgage lending of discrimination. You know, that was my first study coming out of, uh, out of graduate school, showing that when bankers, when, when it was in, in the gray area, you know, minorities and women usually wound up on the wrong side of the tracks, and they didn't get the credit. And it's only if you were super rich or you had pristine credit that you were given the, a fair shot. And that's that's not right. And that stuff still still goes on. You know, you think about the crisis. Many of the the, the African Americans that lost their homes had owned their homes outright. They didn't have a mortgage, and they got talked into doing second mortgages or home equity lines. To, to get a roof or a boiler, things that you would never tell someone to do. And that's the predation that you're talking about. That's the predatory activity that you're talking about. So one thing that's very important, I think is critical, is um, we need to make sure that people in our communities uh, know that there are things to know and know and have some inkling that if something sounds too good to be true, it, it usually is. And talk to people and reach out and engage because we've got to make sure we protect ourselves. On the, at the same time, we need to stamp out uh, predatory activities. And, you know, I talk to bankers all the time and, and tell them, you know, you guys need to find some, some products to compete with the payday lenders and to compete with those folks that are providing the highest cost capital uh, and funding because that's lost to the community. And that's lost by people who actually don't have a lot of extra, right? So that every extra dollar means uh, more for those families and so we need to try to save them. So I'm having those conversations. My team is having that, those conversations because we've got to make sure that, that banking is, is closer to a level playing field than it's been historically in this country. Yeah, I, I, just to follow up on that, uh, President Bostic, what has been the response from those banks? Because I, I almost threw a party on my block down the street here when one of the payday lenders went out of business. I, I could have thrown a whole barbecue because I was every day for 10 years I've seen this, and you know what I don't see on my entire block, or even in within six or seven or even ten blocks, is a major bank. I don't see any of those things. So, what are some of the, the responses that you've been getting in those conversations? So, I've been getting nervous responses, and part of it is that um, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Like, I can't imagine why. <laughs> historically, no, but it's, it's an interesting issue. So, historically. Uh, banks get yelled at by their regulators when they do things and serve those sorts of communities. So it's the whole institution. So I talked to a banker and they said, we used to have a product like that. 
and the regulators made us shut it down because they thought that we were predatory, even though our prices were lower than the payday lender prices. And, and so I'm trying to have conversations to, to create a, a different kind of understanding and thinking about how we rate and rank products, uh, because even if it looks predatory relative to a, a CD, uh, relative to a payday loan, it's cheap, right? And so we have to try to find that middle ground and make sure that we are creating opportunities that, uh, that can work for people. Uh, one of the best books I, I've read on this issue is by Lisa Servan. She's a professor, and she worked for 30, for 30 days at a payday lender. And she compared the experiences wow. in, a, in a payday lender versus what happens when you walk into a bank. When you walk into a payday lender, um, you see every price on the wall. There's no ambiguity about what, what it's going to cost. Uh, people say hello. They come in. Uh, you, and they know the rules. You go into a bank, you don't see a price for anything, right? And they've, they've actually made it hard and, and unwelcome. And there are a whole bunch of things like that that have allowed them to persist. And so one of the things we have to do is think about how do we um, reposition the banking sector to be able to provide services and really understand uh, what consumers are trying to get uh, and what they need. 866-801-8255. Listen, we have an opportunity here to have this conversation with a person who is steeped in it. He's very transparent. He seems very honest. You know, and, 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 you know, there's a side eye about banking because of the pain. It's much like the reason why black folks are not looking forward to getting a vaccine. There's been so much harm done to us that it's hard for us to trust the banking system to do right by us. So, you know, having and, and usually even with Tuskegee, that happened on a HBCU campus with black nurses administering that experiment and that that never gave people treatment. So it's 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 tough you know, for us to get through. But before I go to the callers, because we have several, um, we're talking with Raphael Bostic. Give us like two tips. If, if I'm looking to borrow money and I'm rejected and everything's lining up, what is the recourse that I would have as a, as a consumer? Well, I think the first thing to do is ask for an appeal and have a conversation with, with the, the creditor to make sure that they understand really what your profile is saying, you know, one thing that's very interesting is that oftentimes uh, what they think they're reading is not actually what they're reading. And um, I've been in so many situations where I've talked to one group of people, they say something, and when I go to the other group or the bankers, and they say what they think they've heard is actually not what they what what the truth. And part of it, so there's a translation that goes on. So we need to make sure we have those conversations. Uh, and then the second is really to to be pushy, and and to me, in today's environment, competition in banking is uh, more intense than it's ever been because you can actually go online and you can find banks and services to provide things that you couldn't do 20 years ago, and so there are ways to to sort of make your point that I think can be quite helpful. Uh, and then a third thing for me. Like you, like I really appreciated your opening uh, ad on black-owned banks and on financial literacy uh, because uh, there are institutions out there that uh, people don't know enough about uh, that are oriented toward doing this. There's a, a group of institutions called Community Development Financial Institutions. We call them CDFIs. They are community-based. Half their board has to have 
people from the community and they have to do a lot of activity in the community. So there are alternative venues out there and uh, I would encourage uh, everyone to, to, to use them and engage them as much as possible. CDFI, we just Google search that? Yeah, you put up CDFI, uh, you'll, you'll find us. Or, or Yahoo search or uh, Blackbird search. All right, let's go to the phones. Yeah, I'm not allowed to endorse any product. No, I know. I know. I'm not, I, I caught myself in the middle of even saying that. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Charles in Virginia. He has a question for Mr. Bostic. Welcome to the Oh, uh, yes, Mr. Bostic. Oh, Hello, Wait, wait, wait. Hold, uh, hold on. Charles, Charles, Charles. Inside voice. Inside voice. Hi. Uh, hello. How are you doing this afternoon? I am seeking an answer to Mr. Bostic's definition of qualitative easing. Is, a, is it a benefit to the common owner, Joseph, or the billionaires on Wall Street? To whom is all given whom is most respected by these. So let me, let me step back and just talk about what quantitative easing is. So uh, what happened in the, the, uh, the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, the Fed reduced interest rates to zero. So when you lower interest rates, that's a way to stimulate the economy and try to keep it going and give it support. But when you're at zero, there's nowhere else to go. So you've got to find other ways to provide that kind of stimulus. So what the Fed did was they bought bonds, uh, uh, treasury bonds and mortgage bonds uh, to try to keep liquidity in the marketplace. And what that means is that um, it, you wanna make sure that if you wanna try to sell your house, there's someone out there with cash to buy it. And, um, and in the Great Recession, that was, stop, that was starting to not happen. And so without that liquidity, anyone who wanted to do a transaction on housing was about to get stuck. And so QE actually touched pretty much every homeowner, even though most homeowners don't know that, in that it kept their options uh, wide open and it allowed people to have confidence that their housing uh, was gonna be there. And if they needed to, to sell it, that they would have an ability to do that. So, so I actually think it was actually quite helpful. For me, the one thing that, that I think people forget was how precarious things were at that time. I, like I remember people were bankers I talked to were afraid there were going to be runs on banks and, and the whole uh, economy was going to stop. And we were going to go to barter economy where you better have a nice pair of shoes if you want to get a stake. Like, and that was a reality. So these bold actions were really trying to save the economy and the way that it functions and the way that finance happens. It's very similar to what we're doing right now. Uh, in I was going to ask you, but it's not similar because because we have a pandemic that is going on that we don't know when it's going to end and we don't have leadership. I'm not going to ask you to get political, but we have a lack of leadership with, with a lack of vision. 2007, when, when Barack Obama took over and people do not give him enough credit, there were several things that happened that literally saved our economy. And as, as we're thinking about this, I keep asking this question, how are we just printing money? How are we just, because we, we know that we, we're off the gold standard for the last you know 50 years. There's no, there's no, nothing backing our dollar except trust, except this kind of understanding, right? Can we continue to just print money, Raphael Bostic, and just put it in and, and, and stimulate the economy without a consequence? You talk about bonds. I love treasury bonds, but I'm nervous now. I love investing in the stock market, 
but I know there's going to be some correction at some point and I don't do the, you know, option trading. So I'm not real good at that. So, so t walk us through this. Where, where's the future go? If, uh, if all we are doing is printing money, flooding the, you know, the marketplace with it, and there's no real consequence. Well, let me just go back to the crisis because the first action was TARP, and that was a Bush action, which was oh. actually surprising for many that Republicans would support that. Uh, and then Obama took that and did a whole bunch of other stuff, Dodd-Frank and, and, and uh, mortgage uh, uh, refinance and the restructures. Um, in terms of today, I actually think we're okay. And part of the reason is uh, coming out of the Great Recession, the Fed did that quantitative easing, but there were no rules. There were no ground rules. There were no constraints that were placed on it. Today, a lot of what we're doing has constraints. So you think about these facilities, the, the liquidity that we're providing to particular sectors, um, some of that has to be backstopped by the Treasury Department. And so the Treasury will say, look, I'm not putting up any more capital, uh, risk capital on this, and you have constraints. The other part of, of this is that um, many of the things that we are doing have expiration. Right, so you buy a short-term bond, uh, you're doing that for a three-month period or a six-month period, and at the end, when it matures, you have a, a, a choice about whether you're going to keep going uh, and reinvest it or not. So we have a fair amount of optionality. And then the third thing I would say is um, there's, been a, there's been a significant shift in terms of uh, our balance sheet and what demands are. So our balance sheet, people talk about our balance sheet. Before the crisis, it was about $1 trillion. Uh, after we did all of our QE, it was about $4.5 trillion. And people said, well, if you're going to go to normal, normal's got to go back to one. Well, that's actually not right because in the, in the interim, the demand for cash actually went up significantly. And cash is a liability on our balance sheet. Uh, the increased capital requirements for banks went up considerably. That's a liability on our balance sheet. And so when you think about what the new steady state should have been, it really should have been about three and a half. So we'll go from four and, four and a half to three and a half becomes the new steady state. And that's stuff that people didn't talk about so directly. And so when you think about how much extra is out there, that same thing is happening. Every time we have a crisis, people want to hold cash. Right? Cash is certain, is sure. And so our, our obligations and exposure there are going up once again. Um, now, all that said, I, I, what we are doing right now is for an emergency. When the emergency is over, we need to not do this anymore. And I will be right in front <laughs> saying, look, we need to stop doing this uh, because uh, our policies have to be in normal space in normal time. And that's kind of what I'm going to push for. The chair, Jay Powell, has said the same thing. And uh, I think there's a fair amount of consensus on this that we're, we're going to be responsible um, you're hearing, I'm sorry, that's my, my niece and nephew. This okay, is I was like, you got children. <laughs> children in the no. background. Now, this is normal. This no, is our new normal. They're washing their hands. They're, they're, their mother is very, very good about making sure they stay uh, virus-free. So we're going to make sure they wash their hands for 20 seconds, sing the ABC song, and do all that stuff. I love it. Let's take another <laughs> call, 866-801-8255. Bill in Illinois, you're on with Raphael Bostic. Bill? All right, then I'm going to go. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, hey. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, let me. Okay. Oh, no, not again. Can you All hear right, me? Bill, nope. Hold, put him on hold, please, Amina. Let's go to Alan in Chicago while he figures out how to be heard. Hey, Alan, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. 
Karen. Thank you so much for taking my call. I've been listening to your show almost since the beginning, uh, and I've enjoyed it. I've listened to every hour of every show. And it's strange to say, uh, cue up Jennifer Smith, but I'm actually your first-time caller. We've had some great exchanges on Twitter, but I've never called in before. Thank you very much. Um, I had a question for President Bostic. Um, now, right now we have a stock market that seems fairly high. You might call it a bubble. And I was wondering how the President Bostic felt about there's been some criticism that maybe – the Fed has kind of fed that bubble with the cheap money that's in the system right now, and how would he answer that criticism? So first of all, I think um, my my main uh, focus is on the broader economy and how the whole economy is performing, and we need to make sure that our policies are supporting the full economy. You know, uh, you know there's a, a show that I, I listen to, and they always say uh, the stock market is not the economy, and the economy is not the stock market. And so we need to make sure that when we think about how the economy is doing, we don't use that as the benchmark because that's not the right one. And you know, I've been yelled at a lot to say, look, and you go to African-American communities, unemployment is a whole lot higher than what you see reported on the, on the nightly news. And so why, why isn't that a metric or, or those sorts of questions or where are the small businesses? And so we're trying to take that seriously and make sure that our policy is calibrated to serve the whole economy. And I think if you look across the whole economy, there are lots of places that need a lot of support, and that's why we are where we are. Now, let me also say, when you think about the stock market, I think there was a report just today that said there are six companies that are driving the, the, the increase in the stock market. And they're the typical six. There's the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Netflix, uh, and, and those sorts of – and Apple and Microsoft. Those are the six. Uh, and they are up like 40 50 percent. And everybody else is down. Everybody else in the S&P 500. So that means six companies up, 494 are either flat or down. And it's a quirk of how the index is calculated. That the bigger the company, the more weight you have in terms of what's going to happen. So I think it's dangerous to use the stock market collectively as, as a single metric. If you dis- dis- disentangle this, uh, you'll see that there's a lot of shakiness going on, and that's one of the reasons why we continue to, to be out there. I talk to business leaders. I talk to families and com- com- communities all the time just to see how they're doing, and if they're not doing well, I, talk, I tell every policymaker I can, there are people that are in pain. There are people that are nervous, uh, and we need to, you need to know that to figure out what the right steps for you are going to be uh, moving forward. President Bostic, I I just want to follow up with that because it kind of leads into the question I wanted to ask. With interest rates being so low, and I know that's one of the tools that the Fed has, if we were to kind of experience another kind of surge in COVID probably in the fall or in the early part of the year where then the governments have to lock things down again, and that means the economy is shut down, what is your tool set? What is your toolbox? What's the first thing you kind of go to or what are your colleagues going to go to to kind of start thinking of, of solutions? Well, I'm going to tell you, really, honestly, my first toolkit, the first thing in my toolkit is right now to tell everyone, follow public health guidelines, put on a mask when you're going to have to go out, don't congregate in large groups, because the, the thing that makes this most difficult is if we start seeing these outbreaks that happen periodically scattered around the country. It undermines confidence. It undermines the ability to do commerce. And it means that we got to go back and lock down 
and reduce people's ability to, to get wages and income. So that's the first thing you have to do. And we need to be disciplined on this uh, because, uh, you know, I've seen places open up and then they got to close and then they got to open up again and they got to close. And that herky-jerky means that you're not getting any kind of long-term investment. You're not getting families to feel like they're secure in their jobs because they don't know when it's going to close down again. And we can't have a robust recovery that way. And then you think about minority neighborhoods where the virus has already hit super hard. Right? Their customer base is more at risk because of this. Uh, we need to make sure that, that, that once we go, start moving, we continue to move uh, to provide that support. So that's the first thing. Now in terms of moving forward, and you know, hopefully that works, and we don't have to face this issue directly, uh, but we, we have tools. So the, uh, you know, the liquidity, the asset purchases have been successful uh, in the past. We will continue to, to keep that in the toolkit. Uh, one thing that, that has been interesting and, and, and is, is built out of economics is the idea of forward guidance, where we commit. We say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to stay here until these three things happen. Mm. And that removes a, a lot of uncertainty from uh, business leaders and families about what's going to happen six months from now, 12 months from now, and it can allow them to redirect resources because they don't have to worry about some things. So we've, we're thinking and talking right now about, I, I'm having conversations with my team about what kind of forward guidance would offer the most assurance and the most comfort. Uh, now you've heard, I'm sure, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you guys have been talking about negative interest rates. Um, that's not something that excites me very much. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I'm gonna keep it in the toolkit because in a crisis, you don't know what you're gonna need, uh, but that's gonna be way deep in the toolkit. That's not gonna be the first thing I'm going to look to because I, I, I'm skeptical that it, that it works the way that, uh, that simple theory would suggest. Uh, and if we get to where we need that, that means we will have exhausted a whole host of other, other tools. And for people who invest, uh, President Bostic, the negative interest rates, like I watched my interest rates go, you know, from 2% to 1.5% to 1% to 0.5%. And I'm like, what's the point of me even saving money at this point? Uh, so I'm looking, that's why I'm like stock yeah, market, I, I what have a, you. I got a CD too. I think it's 0.025%. Something yeah. Like yeah. 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 Well, what do we do with that? Well, I mean, and, and when is it going back up? Because we have to, is every quarter, I guess you guys reexamine, like what, what, what can we expect? So we meet every six to eight weeks. We meet eight times a year. And uh, that's when we try, that's when we make a decision about what's going to happen for that next six to eight week period in terms of interest rates. And we will continue to, to uh, deliberate on this. What I would say, you know, I think we've all signaled that until the economy stabilizes, until we get this virus under control and we're on a trajectory that is uh, positive and, and sustained, I would not be comfortable uh, putting any kind of constraint through our policy. So I'm not going to support that. And I think we have to continue to make sure that we are um, responsible and take care of communities, all communities. And one thing that, that I've heard a lot, and it's one thing I worry about, is that you know, all communities are not going to recover at the same speed or at the same time. Mm -hmm. And minority communities and lower income communities are going to re recover uh, far, far less fast. And we've done surveys that just people are expecting 12, 18 months from now. And so it'll be premature to, to claim victory, you know, in three months or six months. 
because for a lot of people, that's just not going to be real or true. And I'm going to try to make sure that uh, I keep my finger on the pulse of those things and continue voicing that perspective uh, with my colleagues and policy so that we don't, uh, we don't leave, we don't run head for the exit too soon in terms of providing our support. 866-801-8255. We've got a couple more calls. Will you stick around and take them? I can do just a little bit more. Okay. All right. Let's go to Bill in Illinois. His audio should be good now. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on yes, with Raphael Bostic. Thank, hey. thank you very much. I'm wondering if your guest can speak to the pros and cons of investing as black banks when they want to be an economic driver in our communities. Can I make money by doing that's what I'm asking? Um, presumably you can. I mean, the, if the bank survives and they do the things that they're doing well, um, you should get a return on your investment in those banks. You know, when I think about black-owned banks, uh, you know, from the, from the very first one, they've provided a special – they've played a special role in communities because, as we talked about very early on, uh, minorities didn't – get having good experiences – with white-owned banks, and they needed support uh, with people who they felt would work on their behalf. Um, they've historically provided a very specialized services. You think about small business lending. Um, to do that well, you need to really know the neighborhoods and the customers that these businesses are working on. And black-owned banks have been a, a very important uh, role there, played a very important role there. Uh, what's happened, though, and, and they've been uh, embattled, uh, because with technology, uh, there's a real premium that's placed on scale. Like, so in today's world, bigger means that you can employ and use a lot more uh, a lot of technology uh, that makes you more competitive. And, and many of our black-owned banks are not big enough really to do that. Mm. Uh, I think there's a, ri- there's a risk uh, if we lose them that we will also lose some vital specific services that are serving black communities today. So. Mm. Uh, I think it's really important that we cert- that we continue to support them. Uh, I've had conversations with black-owned banks, owners of black-owned banks, and and the regulatory infrastructure uh, to start to brainstorm about things that we can do to try to make sure that um, that they're still around and that they can still provide the services. But I think they're important. If you have funds that you you can uh, deposit with them, I think um, it, it, particularly if you're in a in a community that has a black-owned bank. Uh, they're going to provide things in your community that are going to be special and different than what you'll hear uh, and see from other institutions. And, of course, Thrive Thursday is brought to you by One United Bank, the largest black-owned bank in America. And join the billion-dollar challenge by going to oneunited.com slash Karen Hunter. That's oneunited.com slash Karen Hunter. Member FDIC. Great segue. You're, You're not endorsing them. That's very good. That's All very right, good. Let's go. We got some black-owned banks in Atlanta too, so I just got to make sure yeah. that that if you're in the in the southeast, think about the ones that are down in our area as well. Absolutely, uh, Marie in Colorado. But when they start investing in this show, I'll talk about them too. Marie in Colorado, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Hi, Karen, um, and hello to your guest, uh, President Bostic. Um, I work in the mortgage industry. I started out pre-housing um, bubble burst. And there were a lot of things that were being done underhanded, of course. And thank God that I just left it. I really got a bitter taste. And now I'm back into it because, it's, you know, it's always interesting. So uh, I'm not going to call you names or anything, but I work for a nonprofit agency where we actually educate about um, home loans, home ownership, which is wealth, you know, it's a portion of wealth in, in, in our industry, of course. But um, 
just thinking about the Community Reinvestment Act as we were talking about banking and things like that. I was thinking about Curtis Carroll, this gentleman who was in prison, who learned about stocks and things like that, and how he's trying to educate people from, you know, he was trying to educate people from behind San Quentin. And I think the biggest problem that we have now is making minorities interested. We love money. Everybody, you know, that's that's a love. Not that we just love it, that we have to have it. Some people go that way, but I'm just saying having to be interested in money, having to be interested in not just making it money, but making it economic and allowing it to be preached from place to place. The banks that we've actually put our money in are not giving us anything back. And me working, I actually have to tell my clientele, hey, why don't you go to the bank and ask them to give you a filtered ledger or this? And sometimes they don't want to do that. Banks don't want to give anything back, but they want to take everything in, a lot of them. And our black-owned banks are a little bit more sensitive and make us feel at home, as you talked about it earlier. How can we actually get it out on the streets to get people hired by the government some kind of way, I don't know, where they can actually go and do some grassroots education, just basic one-on-one. Like we have to do um, workshops, home ownership, how to get your paperwork together, how to do this, what what your needs are. How can we get it down to the grassroots level where people will become interested in how money works when it comes to um, home ownership, when it comes to buying a car, things like that. That that's where we're the most blind at, and we lose a lot of our money in that area. That's my question. Well, question. it's a it's a very good question, and and it's one that yeah, you know, I have I have a, a fair amount, a number of soapboxes that I get on, and this is one of them. Um, because I I do think that um, we have not done a good job of preparing people uh, when they face these decisions to make good ones. And so we need to do a whole lot better on that. And, you know, in our public school system, oftentimes we are not, we are not requiring courses that teach that thing, uh, that type of stuff. And then moreover, uh, too often uh, black and brown kids, uh, get negative reinforcement from a very early age about their ability to do math and their ability to do science. And so by the time they get to high school or get to college, they just think they can't do it. And they're just grateful that anybody will give them anything at any price. And that's just wrong. So what we're doing in, at the Fed in my bank, we have a, a, a team that teaches teachers how to teach economics and how to teach finance wow. in, in the schools. And we've been doing this for a while. The thing that I have uh, really talked with our team about is, you know, we, we typically engage with high school students, high school teachers, and some of the late middle school. I think we need to go earlier than that. So right now we are running a pilot to build a curriculum for fifth graders and for eighth graders. We're going to run it in classrooms. We're doing it with the, the Federal Reserve Banks in St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Richmond. We're doing it as a collective. Uh, we're going to run it in classrooms. We're going to see if these classes work. And then we're, I'm going to work to make this a required course in every school in America because we need to make sure that we are training people um, so that they know from early on, yes, I, I can do this. I can know things. I can be engaged so we can get more people who, who, when they are buying their car or buying their house, they actually know what's going on and they have an ear to say, Look, that doesn't sound right to me. But moreover, for me, I think it means that there will be more people that, pursue economics in college, that go to get PhDs, that go work in banks, and that, that follow me and do even more than what I'm doing in this role. So I, I actually it. think we're trying to lay a groundwork 
to get some real uh, change uh, in terms of how we all think about this in our community. Let's partner on that. Um, I wanted you to come in because I wanted to look into your eyes, look into your soul, see what you were made of, what you were about. And I'm pleased to say that you are somebody that is rolling up your sleeves to to make sure that we're OK. And that's important. Let's let's partner on this education piece, because I think, you know, especially virtually, uh, will you come back and let's talk more about it and let's have a drumbeat of like how we can get this out in, into the marketplace right now with people uh, at home teaching kids? I think this is super important. I'm happy to do that. One other thing, if you go to our website, we have a monthly page that calls Financial Tips, and we are trying to provide tips for regular people on things that are real for them in real time. It comes out monthly. Please do check out that, and we got lots Where? of stuff on the website. What's, uh, what's the website? AtlantaFed.org, I think, is, is what you can put in. Uh, if, you just, if you do a web search, I'm not going to say Google, you do a web search on the Atlanta Fed, uh, you will, it'll come up and then you can put in financial tips uh, on there and you'll, you'll get, you'll go to that page. And, um, uh, I think there's a lot of knowledge that we are trying to provide to, to everyone, uh, and make it easy for people to make good decisions or at least know, uh, when they're at risk of not making one. Uh, so we can, we can protect ourselves and we can protect everybody. I listen, I appreciate you uh, immensely, and I'm glad your representation matters, y'all. That's what that looks like. Thank you for being here. You're going to be back, Raphael Bostic. You're going to be back. Absolutely.